When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. This is a podcast from Minute Media. Hi, and welcome to this special edition of the Tomahawk Take podcast. I'm Fred Owen, staff writer at the Tomahawk Take. Today, they've turned me loose with the microphone to talk about the history of the Braves franchise and the individuals who helped or hindered its success along the way. As this is the first one, it seems appropriate to start at the beginning, or more accurately, a few years before the beginning, and answer the age-old question, who's your daddy? The answer in this case is William Harry Wright, but the story begins with his daddy. Harry was born January 10, 1835 in Sheffield, England, to Samuel and Anne Wright. Samuel was a pretty ordinary cricket player in England, but he heard there were opportunities in America and that he might make some money. So he immigrated to New York in 1836, taking Anne and young Harry along with him. Sam signed on as the groundskeeper for St. George's Cricket Club and became one of their star batsmen over the next 20 years. During that time, he and his wife Anne had added three sons and a daughter to what would become America's first great sporting family. Daniel arrived in 1836, George in 1847, Samuel in 1848, and Mary in 1858. From that family grew three Major League Baseball players, two of whom are in Baseball's Hall of Fame, and two tennis champions who won medals at the Olympics and two U.S. Open championships. But this is about baseball, and we're here to talk about Harry. Samuel had taught him how to use a cricket bat for the time he could pick it up. And by 14 years old, Harry was ready. He dropped out of school to train full-time as a jeweler's apprentice, but mostly he wanted to play for his father's team, the Dragon Slayers. Harry soon became a cricket star in his own right. And as soon as baby brother George could pick up a bat, Harry began teaching him how to use it. When he was 22 years old, Harry had George over at Elysium Fields practicing cricket when he noticed a baseball game going on across the way. It was the Knickerbocker Club who shared that field with the cricket club. Harry and George walked over and watched the game, and Harry fell in love with it immediately. Soon he was playing baseball for the Knickerbockers as well as cricket for the St. George's Dragon Slayers. While many amateur baseball clubs secretly paid their players, baseball was still a gentleman's game and played for sport. Harry's reputation as a cricketer spread, and there was no money in baseball. 
So he moved to Cincinnati in March 1865 to become professional instructor and bowler for the Union Cricket Club of Cincinnati at the princely sum of $1,200 a year. That doesn't sound like much, but it was actually twice the average annual income of a family in Cincinnati. In 1866, the Cincinnati Baseball Club, hereafter the CBBC, because I can't spit all that out at once, formed and needed an experienced player. They offered Harry the same salary to pitch for their team as he was making coaching the cricket team. Harry signed up right away, played in four games that September, the first four games for that team. After just four games, it was clear Harry should be in charge, so in December, the directors fired their current manager and gave the team to Harry. And he immediately began to make changes. The ball players then were like ball players now. They wanted to turn up at the ball field and play ball. They didn't want to do that practice stuff. Harry insisted that the team meet regularly before the season to practice their throwing and catching skills and learn how he was going to run the team. This creates something we know today as spring training. Harry also understood the need for fitness and required players to work out regularly in a gym. This paid off on the field. In 1867, the baseball club began wearing knee-length hiking pants instead of trousers. The hiking pants gave players more freedom of movement and exposed the team's red stockings. It wasn't long before the club became known as the Cincinnati Red Stockings. Harry pitched and played center field as well as managing the team, and he needed a way to communicate his ideas to the rest of the players while he was on the field. So he developed a set of hand signals, telling players where he wanted them to play, pitches what he wanted them to do. This is the genesis of the hand signals you see today when your third base coach or your manager's making all those funny signs in the dugout. The club finished 17-1 and the first season, and in 1868, they were looking for, for, forward to a greater year. The team actually had a fine year in 1868. They went 36-7. and seven. Now, that's a great record for a team that doesn't have many experienced players. But one loss set in motion the transition of baseball to a professional sport. The Washington Nationals came to town with Harry's brother George at shortstop and trounced the Red Stockings 53-10 to 10 or 57-10. to 10. When you get beyond 50, counting the numbers, it, it doesn't really make any difference. The CBBC directors were so shocked that Chairman Aaron Champion convinced them that the only recourse was to open their checkbook and become, well, champions. The club made Harry general manager and scout and gave him an open checkbook to field the best team available. Specifically, they wanted him to buy every player and what passed for the All-Star team in 1868. Now, Harry was smarter than that. Instead, he put together a team of nine individuals who played like a team without looking for accolades. When the season began, the club had only one native Cincinnati man left on the roster, and that was first baseman Charlie Gould. The new shortstop was the team's hired gun free agent, Harry's brother, George. Harry gave George the only contract bigger than his $1,200 a year deal, $1,400 a year, and it wasn't nepotism. George Wright was worth every penny. John Thorne calls him the Babe Ruth of his era, with good reason. In 57 games, George cracked 304 hits, hit 49 home runs, and batted 629. In his 19 games against professional clubs, George dropped all the way down to a 587 batting average and 13 home runs. 
He could also claim the title of Ozzie Smith of his era. George changed the way shortstop was played. He moved around the position, playing deeper and ranging all over the field, including into foul territory to throw runners out, something unheard of at the time. The club had finished 1868 on an eight-game winning streak and carried that streak through the entire 1869 season. They went 29-0 against professional teams after tra- and after trouncing all opposition locally, made a trip to the West Coast, stopping along the way to beat every team they played. Wright's nine barnstormed their way back and forth across the country and finished the year 57-0. and Harry had delivered exactly what the CBBC had asked for. The club had played the sold-out gates. They were superstars. They were unbeatable. But the season ended with a net profit for the CBBC of $1.39. Wright's Reds started the 1870 season continuing their dominance. It was a 24-game winning streak before losing to the Brooklyn Atlantics in an extra inning game, but they could have let Lind in a tie, but Harry demanded that they play it to the end. The team finished the season 67-6-1, but after losing their unbeaten record, the mystique was gone. Fans stopped coming out, revenues sank, and in November 1870, the CBBC disbanded the team, telling fans that pro baseball was an expensive fad and that they could not continue to support. Harry didn't believe that, and neither did Boston businessman Ivor Adams. Adams had seen the Red Stockings destroy local Boston teams and dreamed of having the Wright brothers playing for a team in Boston. When he heard about the Cincinnati collapse, he contacted Wright, rounded up investors, and together they brought some of the game's best players to Boston to play for the Red Stockings of the new National Association of Professional Baseball Players, also known as the N.A. Wright brought the Red Stockings name to Boston along with his catcher, Cal McAvee, first baseman Charlie Gould, and his brother George. His reputation as a winner convinced pitcher Al Spaulding and second baseman Ross Barnes to leave Illinois and come to Boston. The team was a powerhouse. McAvee finished second in the league with a 431 batting average. Barnes finished third in the league with a 401 average. Left fielder Dave Birdsell hit 303. Harry hit 299. Gould hit 285. Third baseman Harry Schaefer hit 282. Al Spaulding not only finished second in the league with a 336 ERA, he batted 271. George missed half of the season with injury, but batted 413. Had George stayed healthy, Wright's team would certainly have won the league. But the title was all based on winning percentages, and the good guys finished 2010-1 in second place. It was the last time the Red Stockings finished second to anyone in the N.A. The Wright brothers led the 1872 Red Stockings to a 39-8 season, seven and a half games ahead of Baltimore, and won the pennant. They followed that with a 43-16 and record in 1873, a 52-18 and record in 1874, and won their fourth consecutive title in 1875 with a 74-8 record. The league folded during the financial stress and some backroom shadiness by the Chicago White Stockings, now the Cubs. But in its five years of existence, Wright's Red Stockings compiled a 771 winning percentage, a 225-60-7 record. It's little wonder that the N.A. was known as Harry Wright's League.
The Boston Red Stockings were still around, and they joined the National League in 1876, but they'd lost a couple of their stars. Spalding and Bonds were enticed back to Illinois with money by those Chicago White Stockings. The club finished fourth in the league, 39-31, and 31, but Harry Wright wasn't done. He recruited new players, players no one was paying any attention to, under-the-radar players, if you will. And Boston rebounded to win, rebounded to win pennants in 1877 and 1878. They finished second in 1879, but the Red Stockings' heydays were drawing to a close. George's bat was slipping, and other teams had deeper pockets that allowed them to pay more to sign better players than the Red Stockings could afford. Wright took a beating in the press, and he was tired of being underfunded and underappreciated. He left Boston for Providence, led the Grays for two seasons, moved to Philadelphia to take over the struggling Quakers, a team of young, inexperienced players. In his first season, he moved them from sixth place to third place. They never won a championship, but they never finished below fifth again. Harry Wright managed for 23 seasons in the National League. He finished with a losing record in four of those seasons, and one of them was by one game under 500. His 581 overall winning percentage still ranks eighth among all major league managers with 1,500 games managed, eight. Better than Cox, better than Lasorda, better than Torrey. Everybody ahead of him on the list is in the Hall of Fame. Everyone. 129 years after he quit managing, Harry still ranks eighth all time. That's pretty damn good. Alexander Cartwright who's called the father of baseball, called Harry Wright the father of professional baseball. It's doubtful that anyone without Harry Wright's reputation could have accomplished what he did in Cincinnati and Boston. He was regarded as a gentleman and known as a man of strong ethical values, unwilling to make backroom deals or take bribes of backhanders. The December 12, 1883 issue of the Sporting News put it like this. There's no figure more credible in the game than dear old Harry. He emphasizes the necessity of fair play and high ethical standards for the advancement of the game, an admonition that he heeds as well. In 1868 home game, he reversed a blatantly bad ruling of an umpire who was seeking to curry favor with the Cincinnati fans. The Red Stockings lost the game because of that. In later years, Wright himself was actually allowed to umpire games in his own league. I can't imagine letting it another team's manager or even their general manager umpire in the league. Harry Wright died in October of 1895. His death sent shockwaves through the baseball community. Friend or foe, everyone loved Harry Wright. Writer Henry Chadwick said, No death among the professional fraternity has occurred which elicited such painful regret amongst them all. The only thing I can compare this to is, for me, was the death of Ernie Banks. Huge turnout in Chicago for Banks and across the country. And Hank Aaron. Those deaths brought the same kind of general sadness and grief across the league as that of Harry Wright. Chadwick went on to say Harry was the most widely known, best respected, most popular of the exponents and representatives of professional baseball of which he was the virtual founder. In 1886, a newspaper referred to Harry Wright as undoubtedly the best-known baseball man in the country. 
Even his worst enemy, Evan Rogers, said, It has therefore truly been said that so identified was he with the progress and popularity of the game of baseball, its history is virtually his biography. In 1896, the National League declared April 13th Harry Wright Day, a move to collect money to build a memorial upon his gravesite. Wright loved the league so much that he gave all of his writings, all of his papers, everything he'd accumulated over his years to the league for their archives. So how important exactly is Harry Cartwright to the game today? Well, aside from creating spring training and being the first manager to use hand signals, the introduction of short pants and high socks, which I still particularly kind of like, he was also the man who invented doubleheaders and, above all else, he was the reason the professional baseball took off without collapsing in a giant cesspool of scandal. I've seen that others say, you know, that Cap Anson was the important guy, or, uh, but Harry Wright was the one who made professional baseball tick. Without Harry Wright, none of these things exist today, or at least existed the way they are formed today. The fact that we don't talk about Harry Wright is a shame. Harry Wright died in 1895. The Hall of Fame opened at 1936, and inducted George Wright, thanks to Kennesaw Mountain Landis, in 1937. They also inducted Candy Cummings. Why? Uh, anyway, Harry had to wait for induction, or Harry's family had to wait for induction until 1953. But the truth of the matter is this. The Atlanta Braves franchise and the National League professional baseball exist because Harry Wright was the man he was. Braves fans should know about Harry Wright. Braves fans should care about Harry Wright. I hope you'll look at some of the places I look for information about Harry. I use the biographies of Harry and George Wright on the Saber.org website. A post called Samuel Wright, Father of America's Greatest Ever Sporting Family on ExploreNewYork.com. Harry Wright, the father of professional baseball, is available on Amazon.com. Baseball in the Garden of Eden by baseball's official historian John Thorne is available on Amazon.com. The last hurrah for the Cincinnati Red Stocking is on John Thorne's Our Game blog. That's it for this special edition of the Tomahawk Take podcast. I'll try to get another one up if they ever let me anywhere near a microphone. Meanwhile, stop by Tomahawk Take and read some of the posts from our great group of writers out there. Thanks for listening in and putting up with me today. Stay safe, and I'll talk to you at the take. Many thanks to Fred Owens for putting together this historically significant educational edition of the Tomahawk Take podcast. It's a production of TomahawkTake.com and Fansided LLC, a subsidiary of Minute Media, Inc. Opinions expressed on the show today are, well, they're Fred's, but they're quite well-considered opinions at that. All rights reserved. All of the musical selections used come via rights already purchased by TomahawkTake.com. But it's probably noteworthy that the first such piece was entitled Groundwork. Quite appropriate for this history lesson. Hey, thanks for tuning in to the podcast today. And may you find that your own origin roots are just as fascinating as those of the Atlanta Braves. Meanwhile, grab a glove, join us out for the next inning.